Welcome to Medication Talk, the official podcast of TRC Healthcare, home of Pharmacist Letter, Prescriber's Letter, RX Advance, and the most trusted clinical resources. On today's episode, we'll be listening in as our expert panel discusses what's changed with the updated CDC opioid guidelines and what to expect in your practice. Our guest today is Dr. Leila Khalid from the Albert Einstein College of Medicine Montefiore Medical Center. You'll also hear practical advice from panelists on TRC's editorial advisory board, Dr. Andrea Darby-Stewart from Honor Health, Dr. Anthony Donato from the Reading Health System, and Dr. Joseph Sugar from Primary Care 365 and Eisenhower Health. This podcast is an extract from TRC's Emerging Recommendations panel webinar. Each month, experts and frontline providers discuss current medication therapy topics and practical recommendations to include in TRC's letter articles. The full webinar originally aired on December 13, 2022. And now... The CE Information. Pharmacist Letter offers CE credit for this podcast. Please log into your Pharmacist Letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. None of the speakers have anything to disclose. Now, let's join TRC editor, Dr. Lori Dickerson, and start our discussion. We're talking about this now because you'll see more emphasis on individualizing opioids for non-cancer pain in adults due to updated CDC guidelines. And so Layla, to get us started, could you briefly outline the big changes from the 2016 to the 2022 CDC guidelines for opioids for pain? So one of the changes is removing the specific limitation for prescribing opioids for acute pain And in 2016, that was limited to three to seven days, and that has been removed from the 2022 guidelines. The second big change is there was a specified maximum opioid dose of 90 milligrams of morphine equivalent daily dose that has been removed from 2022 guidelines. Okay, so those are the two big changes. Those are the things that we've identified too from the guidelines. We do want to focus in on those acute prescriptions and that three to seven day change and the chronic use of 90 milligrams, uh, morphine milligram equivalents, and that change also. But before we sort of talk about those specifics, I'd like to just step back a bit and hear how our panelists have felt. Like Andrea, for example, what impact, positive or negative, did you see that the 2016 guidelines and prescribing limits had in your practice? Um, One of the things that I felt was most helpful was that it provided me with a set of defined ground rules to speak to my patients about opioid use. You know, in many cases, this is a pressure point in primary care practices and physicians feel as if they have to have an all or none approach and some refusing to prescribe at all, others feeling backed into a corner when patients requested uh, medications to help manage their pain. And so I think this ultimately provided some good guardrails for the practices that were appropriate for my family medicine practice. Okay, thanks for that perspective. And Joe, I'd like to hear from you too. What has your experience been since 2016 with the the opioid prescribing guidelines that were implemented then and positive and negative? What I'm finding is many more patients are resisting wanting opioids. They, They actually, I'd like to avoid it if at all possible. Now, unfortunately, the the fallback ends up being a drug that we don't really recommend that much called tramadol. Uh, A lot of my patients are seniors in which the the NSAIDs and aspirin products are are relatively contraindicated. So you're either going from Tylenol to 
to tramadol to an opioid, and we're we're doing a pretty good job of avoiding that. And I'm a low dose provider, and recommend things like turmeric and other supplements that may reduce inflammation and pain. So it's been very helpful. Well, that's great to share that, Joe. We'll definitely talk about sort of the holistic approach to pain and different things that can be tried. Um, and, um, you know, some of the issues that you mentioned with respect to NSAIDs. And so, Layla, from your standpoint uh, as an expert in this area, can you talk a little bit about the impact that you've seen uh, from the 2016 guidelines and how the prescribing limits have impacted pain management from a maybe more global standpoint? I've had a somewhat different experience. I prescribe a lot of opioids. I run a pain clinic, which is embedded in primary care and residents. I run it along with residents. So what I've seen is that when there's a limitation to three to seven days, um, that sometimes leads to problems. And I can explain that a little bit. So for example, somebody who's on chronic opioids either gets a prescription after you know a lapse, uh, you need to do prior authorizations all over again just because of that stipulation. That's number one. The second thing that I've seen, uh, you know, um, that, uh, so I want to specify this is particularly for acute pain, but how insurances enforce it or operationalize it is not always just limited to acute pain. They might sometimes also implement it for chronic opioids. Let's say if I'm changing a prescription for a patient for chronic opioids, I might get the pushback. Um, from insurance, like this is a new medicine, can you do the prior authorization all over again? So that leads to delay in getting medications. That's number one. The second point that I was going to make was around the limitation of 90 milligrams. There was a lot of misunderstanding around this uh, limitation, and therefore there was even an addendum or a clarification from the CDC. How it was uh, operationalized by some providers was that patients, for example, who have been on opioids for a really long time and say on a higher dose of opioids than 90 milligrams equivalent, there was a, this need to bring them down to 90 milligrams, um, not realizing they had been on these opioids for a long time. So the clarification was as you're st starting out someone on opioids to really think about increasing to 90 and beyond, rather than patients who are already on higher doses to bring them down to 90. I appreciate that clarification. And you mentioned that, you know, some of the consequences that we have here, uh, unintended consequences, such as untreated pain due to lapses in therapy, perhaps withdrawal. And one thing we wanted to ask about, Layla, is the sh shifting towards illicit drug use. And there has been discussion about that, um, you know, whether or not these limitations have shifted folks to illicit drug use. And, and then others have shown that I think that some of the shift towards illicit drug use started before these 2016 guidelines. So I'm just wondering if you can comment on whether you think this actually has been an unintended consequence. Sure. There is possibly some switch to illicit opioids. I wouldn't say there's a what proportion the switch is, I wouldn't be able to comment on that. Um, mm. But you're absolutely right. Uh, so I, I just want to remind everyone, I am someone who's sitting in the Bronx, who's in the midst of uh, uh, opioid crisis, and mm. COVID sort of like even made it worse. Mm. Um, so I fully realize that. And what I've seen in my chronic pain clinic is I see many patients whose providers stop prescribing opioids all of a sudden 
just because they didn't feel comfortable in prescribing opioids. Now, mm -hmm. I don't know if this is a result of the CDC 2016 guidelines. There might be, but I get a lot of questions from providers about this 90 milligrams or how they really understood the 2016 guidelines. It is true, and uh, lots of research and papers have shown that if you taper involuntarily or if you abruptly stop prescribing opioids for a patient, there are increased likelihood of unintended consequences, including mm -hmm. termination of care with your healthcare provider and overdoses and death. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that perspective. And Andy, what are your concerns about removing these thresholds for opioid use and pain management in, in your hospital's practice with these new 2022 guidelines? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think a lot of what's uh, been said, I would totally echo. Uh, we are seeing uh, patients that are being fired. Uh, um, mm -hmm. it, it, the, these patients are a lot of work. Um, and you know, 10% of your practice is often 50% of your work and opioid patients often take a lot. The prior auths that were mentioned, uh, the, the calls, the, the drug testing, and these patients are getting dumped. And mm -hmm. then they're essentially presenting with, I'm out of all my pain meds. Or they don't even say that. You find that out later. Uh, and it's a, it's a big drag on the system. Mm -hmm. So, Leila, I wonder what you think about the next paragraph that we have in our article, um, because there are some folks who are on unhappy with the uh, removal of the thresholds in the 2022 guidelines, um, that this could be a step in the wrong direction. It may lead to rebound and misuse, overdose, et cetera. Um, can you speak to sort of that side of the equation? Absolutely. So how I interpret and how I reason why the thresholds have been removed is in my mind to inform policy. Now this does not, remove the fact that we need education of providers of how to comfortably prescribe opioids, how to comf comfortably um, take care of patients on chronic pain. So I think that is a separate issue that needs to be addressed. And this, and I think what the CDC guidelines are trying to do is sort of like inform policy, especially around insurance companies, um, so that it's not interpreted in a way that is harmful for patients. But I fully support, I really think there's a strong need. I cannot stress enough what there's such a strong need to train providers mm -hmm. at every mm -hmm. level. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Andrea, I have a question for you. We're getting some comments coming in um, from our audience members. Um, you know, and of course, a lot of our audience members are community pharmacists who are at the front lines of getting these prescriptions and, and having to interface with insurance companies like you are in primary care. Um, you know, do you have any thoughts about, you know, in the next in coming months as these thresholds are removed and folks are thinking about the 2022 guidelines, um, how you might interface with pharmacies or they might interface with you to uh, try to avoid gaps in therapy and address questions? Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, having an open line of communication with our um, clinical pharmacy colleagues is one of the most important things we can do in ambulatory primary care. Um, trying to be clear um, in our prescribing um, on the electro electronic prescriptions that the controlled substance um, uh, uh, database was accessed, the indication for the um, medication, 
um, are certainly uh, appropriate ways to communicate electronically and then being open to those phone calls that you may get for people who are, you know, filling prescriptions and may have an insight into um, uh, patients' other prescriptions that you're not aware of or um, challenges that they're facing getting the prescriptions filled by insurance is certainly uh, going to be important here. Um, I'm, I'm not as worried about removing the upper limit threshold or the um, total number of days of availability for prescribing threshold, um, because I think that um, reducing those um, actually provided a, a well-needed learning opportunity and reset for the medical community, particularly for those who were um, excessively prescribing pain medications. And I'm hoping um, provided some additional thoughtful education for those of us who do prescribe opioids for uh, pain management um, and helped us um, learn better practices by some of the required CME and uh, required, more required interfaces with our pharmacy colleagues. Excellent points and well stated. And um, uh, I think uh, that sets the stage for us to talk about moving forward, how these will be implemented and what folks can do in their practice. And of course, we first continue to say things like, um, we want to balance opioid risks with potential benefits, and that's a very individualized decision and very patient-specific and not something that we can be prescriptive about in our recommendations. But let's talk about non-opioids. And Layla, um, I think uh, everybody would agree that non-opioids should be considered as, as effective as opioids for many pain types. And I'm just wanting to hear from you about how receptive patients are to non-opioids as an adjunct um, or in, instead of, of course, with, as an initial treatment um, for, for many types of pain. Sure, absolutely. So in my head, uh, the way I approach chronic pain treatment or even acute pain treatment is sort of like a stepwise, almost like a ladder. So I would start off with non-opioids, for example, Tylenol works for acute pain, not so necessarily for chronic pain, but I would use um, acetaminophen followed by NSAIDs and then other non-opioid medicines like SNRIs, um, such as duloxetine. Um, and these don't have to go one step at a time. Like I can start two of them together. There's also non-pharmacological treatments such as physical therapy, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, assessing for mental health and appropriately referring them. Um, the other point I want to make is, let's say if somebody does get started on opioids, the way I like to teach my residents and faculty and also tell my, educate my patients, is that opioids is just one piece of the puzzle. And there are so many other pieces that we have to address, which includes non-opioids that I just mentioned. And those together will help treat your pain rather than this just one magic medication that will treat your pain. Mm -hmm. Great approach. And I think that echoes what you've already mentioned, Joe, about different approaches that you consider in your practice for managing pain, uh, which can be things like supplements and um, non-drug therapies, as Layla has mentioned. So I think we'd all ag agree with uh, that sort of combined approach to look at um, different ways to uh, address the pain. Um, but, you know, Layla, the, there's also this new category in the uh, opioid, the CDC guidelines of subacute pain. 
we're getting some questions about subacute pain. We've struggled with our recommendations surrounding subacute pain. Uh, and this audience member says, I understand how this category of subacute pain is defined, but how should this time period be managed differently from acute or chronic pain? And um, I think this is a great question. What is the CDC aiming for with this new category, Layla? What are your thoughts on subacute pain, the purpose of that yeah. definition? Yeah, I, I think this is where we can intervene almost aggressively so that the prescription of opioids doesn't become chronic. That's one view. So for example, in this period uh, between the acute and the chronic pain, I would like to follow up with my patients more regularly. For example, um, if I'm saying, let's I'm trying an intervention, let's say I started um, acetaminophen in a patient or I started NSAIDs in a patient, being quick to address if there is no change or if the medication is not improving their pain to see the patient in person or whatever to help ease their anxiety. A lot of patients who have pain have a lot of anxiety. And if we don't see these patients frequently enough, especially in this time period, I feel that just increases anxiety and exacerbates things. What happens is patients with pain, we, we are like, okay, we want to see these patients less. It actually should be the opposite. We want to see these patients more frequently. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, so I think this is the time period where you can intervene, try different things, see what works for them so that non-opioids are emphasized. And let's say even if opioids are started, we can either decide to taper or change the dose uh, and make adjustments in this period before, you know, they're mm -hmm. stuck with, or oh, this patient is on chronic opioids. I appreciate that explanation of that time period. And that's really what we were trying to get at um, with our wording to put more focus on managing subacute pain to prevent inadvertent long-term opioid use. And I appreciate your recommendation to have more frequent follow-up during this time period. And we talked about moving the follow-up that's in the article now up to this section to sort of reinforce that follow-up during that period. And um, so I think that's a good change for us to consider. And Andrea, I'm just wondering if you've been thinking about the subacute period or if you've experienced caring for patients in your practice during this subacute period and if um, this new definition makes sense to you from a practical standpoint. Yeah, it does. You know, and it's interesting. Um, in our clinical practice, we get a lot of referrals of patients who don't have ambulatory primary care physicians um, from trauma. And so those patients fit very neatly into this category and frequently have injuries that do require longer management with kind of in a subacute setting. Um, and one of the things that we also utilize in the setting is really um, lean on our behavioral health consultants um, to help us um, with patients who you know, have these injuries or other events in their life um, that have obviously caused great disruption and help them manage their pain and their expectations through ongoing counseling as well as more frequent visits with our clinic. So I think really wrapping around resources um, for patients who have chronic pain or subacute pain and really helping them um, define their goals and understand what the goals of care are and being able to articulate that and put that in language um, that um, you both agree on is really important. Okay, great explanation. So let's actually move ahead and talk about what to do if you choose to use an opioid. So we make the statement, if opioid 
pros outweigh the cons, and then we make a recommendation about what to do. And we want to make it real clear that, you know, it's not an easy decision to say that opioid pros outweigh the cons and to start an opioid, and um, it's very patient-specific um, and, um, you know, condition-specific and, and comorbidity-specific. But, of course, we're going to continue to use the lowest dose of an immediate-release opioid for the short, shortest duration possible. And so, Andy, I'm wondering about in your hospital practice uh, is, um, you know, how do you approach this decision and starting with low-dose opioids? What are your thoughts here? Yeah, I think you got it right here. Um, in, in my practice, just because I'm a hospitalist and I can't follow them, I am really stuck with the, the very, very short term stuff. And I think what, uh, what what Andrea brought up was the, the uh, if they don't have a primary care physician, you're actually, uh, you're, you're almost pushing them off a cliff with this stuff too. So I will start very early on with uh, all of the non-opioid stuff and, and give them the, just the, the very short acute stuff that they, they need. Uh, and that's it. In my uh, chronic care practice in street medicine, uh, we don't prescribe them at all, which <laughs> is nice in that that discussion is not on the table, and I can introduce a lot more non-opioids, and they're much more receptive knowing that that's not a piece that we're talking about. Very good points. And um, Layla, we make a point on this slide um, to have an exit plan in mind when you start an opioid. And can you comment on that and if that is uh, the mindset that you go into this with when you're starting an opioid? Sure. Yes, I do discuss with patients, especially when I'm starting out, that this is to see if your pain is going to get better. I do emphasize that I'm prescribing this medication so that, for example, you can get physical therapy so that you can get stronger um, and then we can revise this um, if possible in a few weeks on follow-up. So I have a plan and then I, again, don't emphasize opioids as the only thing that's going to help treat pain. Even if I start the opioid, emphasize another adjuvant. And the reason why I mentioned physical therapy, physical therapy in the beginning actually exacerbates pain. So patients are even more apprehensive to start physical therapy. And so you're like, okay, the, pain, the opioids are going to help with the pain and the mm -hmm. pain associated with physical therapy, which is going to make you stronger and in the long term help decrease your pain. That's a great point. And so, you know, we uh, state if stopping the opioids is impossible, encourage continued conversations about goals, such as improvement in function that you mentioned. And so um, I think we could also include something there about, you know, continuing to encourage and ensure adjuvant therapy is, is utilized, um, such as PT. So appreciate that, that feedback. That's a, that's a great point to add. Okay, let's um, talk about stopping now. Um, we do make the recommendation to caution patients not to stop opioids abruptly and generally recommend a taper to minimize withdrawal. And so, Layla, the question has come up, is a taper always recommended even if opioids are just used for, say, a week? And so how, how do you make that decision about when to taper? Sure. So I do want to sort of like divide the acute pain from the chronic pain here. So acute pain is only for a few days, let's say the opioids are prescribed for acute pain only for a few days, that's limited. And depending on what opioid was prescribed, if it's a short acting opioid, if it was a low dose opioid, potentially you do not need to taper. Now, on the other hand, if somebody has been taking a medication, an opioid medication chronically from, for months or potentially years, that has to be a taper and a voluntary taper. I have to mm -hmm. emphasize that. 
Involuntary um, temper, yes, that's a good point. Also, that subacute category too, right, Layla? Would we yes. we would be thinking about tapering those folks also? Yes. So how I address this and how I set up the conversation before I start opioids is that we are prescribing opioids so your function improves. Um, sometimes necessarily your pain score doesn't improve, but as long as your function is improving, we can think about decreasing opioids. Um, it has it shouldn't be forced most of the time. I like to engage the patient and uh, tell them about the side effects on, you know, if you take it chronically and w what are the potential downfalls of chronic opioids, et cetera, et cetera. So in the subacute category, I would want the patient engagement um, and we can come up with a plan together on how to taper opioids maybe over a few weeks. So for subacute, just because it's not chronic, I don't anticipate a longer taper that you would think for chronic mm -hmm. opioids in which the taper can sometimes go on for months to years, for example. Right, right. So I think uh, there's a lot to unpack there in terms of tapering. And I will say that uh, we, we recognize that there will be several follow-on articles to this one, such as how to taper and some of those specifics. Um, we do have some of that information in our clinical resource document also, uh, but certainly we want to keep those general principles in mind to recommend a taper, um, to encourage patients not to stop abruptly, which probably many of them are not likely to do if they've been chronic users, unless there's been inadvertent stopping because of maybe some issues that we've discussed earlier, and then to use a slow taper for the longer use. Lori, can I just mention yes. one other point? And I like to stress that uh, with my patients. This is just a tool that I use, it's shared decision-making. Mm -hmm. So for example, I might give them an option, you know, um, are we gonna do this taper? Uh, one option is we're gonna taper the dose. The other option is taper the frequency. And then I allow the patient to choose and having control over how you wanna do it is empowering for the patient. And I find it more effective um, that they're gonna implement it. So, you know, yeah. giving them two options and letting them decide which one they wanna do. That's great. Great advice. And we'll definitely uh, remember those things for our tapering piece that we will be coming out with. You know, Andrea and um, Andy and Joe, I wanted to ask you all in your primary care practices, um, some of the other sort of risk mitigation tools uh, uh, with respect to opioid use, which ones are you generally using and how easy is it to use things like your prescription drug monitoring program? Um, you're in drug testing, opioid treatment agreements. What's your experience, Andrea, with, with um, these other risk mitigation tools? Yeah, so our organization, um, with the advent of the 2016 guidelines, put all of those in place. And so those are requirements that are hardwired into our electronic um, health record uh, for me to do any type of opioid prescribing beyond an acute uh, dosing. And so, Joe, what about your experiences with these? Well, the, the pain contract is always, it's a time-honored way of, of using this. And personally, I do it verbally and then document it rather than a formal document that they have to sign. I just find that awkward, although in my residency training, I think it was more important. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, in California, we have what's called the Cures uh, Program. And even with legislation that requires us uh, with ongoing prescriptions to do a Cures report and it's and it's really helpful to make sure that they're not getting opioids from anybody else. Okay, great points there. Uh, I do want to also quickly address naloxone use. So we do have a recommendation here to recommend naloxone with each opioid prescription. 
especially with patients at risk of overdose. And Layla, I'm wondering about your thoughts on this wording. And do you uh, recommend offer a prescribed naloxone with each opioid prescription, or is it more selective than that? Sure. So I have to mention that in New York, a law just was passed in which any opioid prescription, you have to send an naloxone prescription. My mm. clinic is a little bit different. We collaborate with the Department of Health and we have naloxone kits in our clinic. So we actually dispense physically the naloxone kit mm. to our patients. Um, I would say it hasn't, it doesn't have to be with every single prescription. For example, the same patient, I wouldn't give the kid again and again. It just has to be maybe once a year to each individual patient. Giving the naloxone kid, training the patients and their family members also sort of like helps them realize the risks associated with the opioids. And it can sometimes even start conversations around risks. And, you know, I, I think it really helps inform patients that the medicine that they're taking has to be used, uh, you know, responsibly. I like that approach. I think, you know, a lot of times we hear that prescribers and pharmacists are uncomfortable bringing up the discussion of naloxone, uh, but your your comment of, you know, helping people understand the risks is maybe uh, one way to, to frame that. And Andy, did you have something to add? No, I was just saying, I think that that's a great idea to hand it out. And I, um, I, I try to hand it out uh, as often as I can, but I don't have enough. That would be amazing to just mm -hmm. just pass it across the desk because those conversations have to happen in real time with the doc. You mm -hmm. almost worry that somebody getting at the pharmacist may just say, no, you can keep that or walk away from it because I have other bills to pay. But, mm -hmm. uh, but you hand it over and you have that conversation. I think that that's a really effective way and great advice. And I think that is a difficult decision, you know, for patients who might be paying for the naloxone. You know, Andrea, what, is, what does that look like in your practice setting in terms of naloxone offering? I actually prescribe it for any patient that is receiving a chronic opioid uh, mm -hmm. treatment. Although I guess the argument would also be that those who are opioid naive or are going to have opioids in the house um, with other people who might be at risk would also benefit from having a prescription. Um, the reality is that I think the majority of my patients walk away from the prescription at the pharmacy. Yeah, yeah it's very difficult. You know, Layla, I have one more question that's coming in. We've gotten several questions um, that we haven't included in the article, but we are getting questions about use of CBD or marijuana for pain. And so I'm just wondering if you can comment on CBD or THC as an adjunctive therapy and um, what your thoughts are there. Sure. So there are actually studies that have been done um, or are in process of being done. Some have already been done and that have shown that patients are using medical cannabis um, there's an association of decreased opioid use in those patients. And yes, there is a role. It can help with pain. It can help with neuropathic pain and other, other sorts of pain. And in my practice, I do refer patients for medical cannabis. The only caveat is it is not covered by insurance. And so my patient population cannot afford to get it on their own. That's the only drawback. But yes, I do refer my patients to get medical cannabis. And so it would be state-specific, but is an option for adjunctive therapy to consider. Very good. We hope you enjoyed and gained practical insights from listening into this discussion. Now that you've listened, you can receive CE credit from Pharmacist Letter. Just log into your Pharmacist Letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. If you're not yet a Pharmacist Letter subscriber, 
Find out more about our product offerings at trchealthcare.com. Be sure to follow or subscribe, rate, and review this show in your favorite podcast app. It helps spread the word about our show and is a great way for you to let us know how we're doing. You can also reach out to provide feedback or make suggestions by emailing us at contactus at trchealthcare.com. Thanks for listening to Medication Talk.